I hope that you will uh, have a Bible open to Revelation chapter 22, and we may be flipping around a little bit uh, in the book of Revelation. Who knows what will happen? Um, so you may find it helpful to have a chair Bible. And again, the page number is 1041. Thank you. So um, you may be thinking, what are we doing in the book of Revelation? I thought we were going through the book of Romans. But uh, the reason for this is because last week, five of us from Valley Bible Church attended a three-day workshop on biblical exposition, and the topic was preaching uh, through the book of Revelation. So we're taking a one-week break from Romans to do one message from the book of Revelation. So let's pray as, as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we need your help. I don't have any power or righteousness or persuasive ability in and of myself to do anything of lasting value. But your word is powerful. It is the sword of the spirit. Your spirit is powerful. So we invite you to work among us Encourage those who are discouraged. Warn and correct those who are wandering. We ask that you, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be here with us now as we look together at your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the book of Revelation. But for many people, it is confusing and intimidating, and therefore, largely ignored. Now, I know that, as in all cases, our women's Bible studies are way ahead of us, and they went through the book of Revelation last year. They are undaunted, intrepid students of God's word. But for many of us, we just ignore it, because it is wild and confusing, and uh, so we avoid it. And preachers, like myself, tend to avoid the book of Revelation too because it can be controversial and difficult. Uh, if you want to see uh, an all-out war, start talking about uh, the, view, the different views that we have about the end times. And so in order to avoid that controversy, uh, preachers often avoid the book of Re Revelation. But to avoid this book is a tragic mistake. To avoid the book of Revelation is to neglect God's provision for us, his encouragement for our spiritual survival. God has given us this book for our survival as Christians in this world. And we need the encouragement of this book. I don't have to tell you how hard it is to follow Jesus in this world. Our desire to follow Jesus is under constant pressure, constant threat. We are under the threat of temptation. The world and its desires are a constant corrosive force. Revelation chapter 12 reminds us that our adversary, the devil, is murderously intent on destroying us. 
He's murderously intent on destroying the followers of Jesus uh, because we are followers of Jesus. Uh, this afternoon, you maybe you want to read Revelation 12, and what we see is that the devil wants to destroy Jesus. And because he can't get to Jesus, because Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father and untouchable to Satan, he goes after the the next best thing that he can get his hands on, which is us, the followers of Jesus, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So in, in this world, as followers of Jesus, Satan wants to tempt us, to lure us away from following Jesus, to distract us from the important things of life. And so it is hard to follow Jesus in this world. It's also hard to follow Jesus in this world because of the threat of persecution. In many places in the world, there is hard persecution on the followers of Jesus. There is danger of death or imprisonment. Here we face soft persecution for the sake of Jesus. We face social pressure for our stand with Jesus Christ. We face ridicule for the sake of Christ. We face ostracism for upholding God's moral standards. We feel the pressure to conform and to adopt the prevailing worldviews of our day. It's hard to follow Jesus because of the sorrows and discouragements of living in a sinful and fallen world. We grow weary of the onslaught of sickness and pain and conflict. In the midst of all of the hardships we face as followers of Jesus in this world, this book of Revelation is God's gift to us to strengthen us. So although we tend to avoid the book of Revelation, that is exactly the wrong response. This book is exactly what we need. So maybe you've been avoiding it, and maybe you want to dip into it in your own reading. Maybe we'll have to come back to the entire book in a future sermon series. What the book of Revelation does in its wild visions is it gives us a peek behind the curtain of the universe. We get a glimpse of the ultimate reality that lies behind the reality in which we live. We get to see the ultimate spiritual reality that lies behind the struggles that we face in the everyday. And God gives us this glimpse to strengthen us to follow Jesus no matter what. Through the visions of this book, we get to see the hidden glories. We get to see the glory of Jesus Christ in all of his divine heavenly radiance. In chapter 1, look with me at chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. It's not the kind of Jesus we're accustomed to imagining. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white 
like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the glory of Jesus in the heavenly realms. Despite all earthly appearances, Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is alive and reigning, and he is with us, his church. That's what the peak behind the curtain tells us. In this book, we get to see the defeat of the evil one, the devil, Satan. We get to see the final triumph of Christ, his final victory over the devil and all who are under his control. In this book, we get to see the new creation, the paradise of God, where God will dwell with his people forever, as Eva read for us. There is coming a new creation where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, the eternal reward for all those who have followed Jesus Christ. But although this book of visions takes us to the end of all things, to the new creation, to the end of history, that's not how the book ends. The book of Revelation doesn't end with the vision of the end of all things. It ends back here on earth, back here where we live. And that's the passage that we have at the end before us today. Where we live, as you know, Everything is not yet unspoiled bliss. Where we live, the glory of Jesus is not regarded by the people in our communities. It's not even properly regarded by us as it should be, in all honesty. So John ends his book back where we are, and he ends with a final warning, a final encouragement to each of us. And we find it in verse 7. Look at Revelation 22, verse 7 with me. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible, uh, just know that the, um, the editors who decide what letters are in red have a hard time with this. It is almost impossible to know when Jesus stops speaking and when John starts speaking. It is, it is all jumbled together, and that's okay but we know for sure some of the verses have to be Jesus speaking, and those are the ones that appear in red. And this is what Jesus says to us down here in the real world in verse 7, the final charge. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
See, this book that we often avoid, this book that we uh, don't, don't know what to do with, is a book that contains a blessing. We will be blessed if we keep this book. And a book that we don't read, a book that we don't pay any attention to, is not a book that we can keep, is it? The blessing is for those who keep the book, who read the book, and keep it. And it is Jesus himself that promises the blessing. Jesus, who is alive. Jesus, who reigns at the right hand of God forevermore. He is reigning now in heaven, and he promises us that he is coming soon. The word soon is a common word in the book of Revelation. It's found eight times in the book. But four of those soons are in, in this last set of verses, this final charge. This is the grand finale of soonness. We see the first soon at the end of verse 6 to show his servants what must soon take place. And again in verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. And again in verse 12, Jesus repeats the same words again. Behold, I am coming soon. And again at the end of verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. Three times in these three verses, Jesus promises that he is coming soon. We also see the urgency of these last words in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Well, you may know that I'm a little bit um, obsessive-compulsive about certain things. Some of you know that. One of the things is I'm a filing junkie. So I have my own little label maker in my desk, and... I, I love to put things in files and have them all organized. And I like to file everything away neatly and clearly for deep storage, eventual retrieval. I want to file it away because someday I might need it. I might want to go back and pull it out. But there are some things I do not file away in deep storage. And those are the things that I'm working on right now. The things I'm working on right now, the current stuff, is just all over my desk. That's where it lives. It lives on my desk because I'm working on it right now. And that's what the angel is saying to John and to us. The angel is saying, don't seal this thing up. Don't file this book away for long-term storage. Don't put this thing away for eventual retrieval. This book needs to stay on the desktop of, of our lives. Because the prophecy of this book is not primarily for some eventual time. It is not primarily about some time far off in the distance. It is for now. We should be living every day of our lives in the reality of this book. It should be on our, on our desktop. And the reality that Jesus is coming soon is life-altering. Isn't it? Shouldn't it be? 
If you are a follower of Jesus, this promise from Jesus that he is coming soon ought to strengthen us. It ought to strengthen our resolve to repent of our sin, to embolden us to endure persecution. It ought to open our lips to spread the good news, even if it invites ridicule or ostracism from people we care about. It ought to inform our priorities, uh, emphasizing eternal realities rather than the here and now. When the pressures and the temptations of this world begin to creep in, as they always do, we need a dose of reality. And the reality is that Jesus is coming soon. And if you are not a follower of Jesus... This promise from Jesus is no encouragement at all. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this promise from Jesus is a warning. When Jesus comes again, and he is coming soon, he will come as judge, and all who are still in rebellion against him will be judged. The the visionary image that is given of Jesus bringing the judgment of God is that the blood of his enemies will be as high as a horse's bridle. Now again, this is just imagery, but this is imagery of total decimation. Complete carnage. So the coming of Jesus is a warning to every one of us who has not yet believed in him. Because when he comes, he is coming to judge, and it will be too late. So this drumbeat of this last chapter, Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Ought to be an encouragement to us as followers of Jesus and a warning to those who have yet to follow him. And the fact that Jesus is coming soon comes with a command from Jesus himself. Because Jesus is coming soon, we must keep this book. We see the charge there in verse 7 in the form of a promise. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the same promise we're given at the beginning of the book of Revelation in Chapter 1, verse 3, where we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Those of us who keep this book will be blessed. I find it so ironic that a book that we often avoid, a book that we often skip, is a book that we are commanded to read and to hear and to keep with all vigilance and the blessing of doing so is eternal life. And the rest of these verses give us some idea of what keeping this book is all about. And you'll see in in the bulletins that um, there are four, essentially four reasons 
four ways that we keep this book. But the first thing we see is that if we keep this book, we are in some very exalted company. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us. Uh, Look at the surprise of verses 9 and 10. John tells us um, some unflattering things about himself, uh, which is a good indication uh, that John didn't have anything to gain from this book. He's in prison on the island of Patmos, and he's writing about mistakes that he has made of trying to worship uh, something that isn't the true and living God. So it adds veracity to his words. And he tells us about this blunder. He was so awed by the visions that he had seen that he tried to worship the angelic messenger. And the angel says in verse 9, and what the angel says is incredible, John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So do you see the amazing equivalency that the angel makes? The angel is saying that he is a servant of God and that John and the other apostles are servants of God together with him. Of course, right? The apostles, they're way up there. And the prophets are with them. The angels, the the apostles, and the prophets. But there's these other people with them too. Everyday Joes, you and me. He says, and with those who keep the words of this book. If we keep the words of this book, we are peers, fellow servants, together with some exalted company, together with the angels in heaven, together with John and the other apostles of Jesus Christ, together with the prophets of old. Keeping the words of this book, keeping the testimony of Jesus, puts us with the greatest servants of all time. And for those of us who live down here in the real world, and face the pressures of following Jesus, it is encouraging to hear that we are in such exalted company. Because let's face it, in the eyes of the world, we are a joke. I mean, isn't, isn't it time to admit the facts? In the eyes of the world, we are a joke. According to the world in which we live, We are practitioners of an outdated, irrelevant, misguided, has-been relic. But although this is how our culture may feel, it is not so. If we hold to the testimony of Jesus, if we cling to the word of God, if we keep this book, no matter what, then we are in the exalted company of the angels in heaven and the apostles and the prophets. People say, well, you guys are on the wrong side of history. Well, you just have to play the tape a little farther because when you get to the end of history, Jesus wins. And we are on the right side of history no matter what happens today in the here and now. And this passage gives us four main ways 
for us to keep this book. The first way we keep this book is by avoiding moral compromise. And moral compromise is a danger all around us, for each one of us. How we need to hear the warning of verse 15. Look again at verse 15. Outside, that is outside the heavenly city, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The moral compromisers will be outside the paradise of God. They will be outside the city. They will be in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a metaphor for eternal torment. Those who have chosen sexual immorality over following Jesus, those who have chosen idolatry, seeking to serve other things rather than following Jesus, whether it be greed or career or family or comfort or pleasure or stuff, it can be anything we live for other than following Jesus. Those who have chosen idolatry will be outside. And verse 11 is so shocking. It sounds like it's encouraging evil. Let the evildoer still be filthy. In fact, it's a command. Go on and do evil, evildoer. Be filthy, you filthy one. It's a command. What's going on there? It isn't encouraging evil. These verses are essentially saying, you do you. You be what you are. If you're an evildoer, then go on doing evil. If you're a holy one, then go on being holy. See, what it means is that our true identity is borne out by what we do. If we are those who carry on doing evil, we show ourselves to be evildoers. We prove our identity as evildoers. If we are those who carry on doing filthy deeds, we show ourselves to be filthy ones. If we do righteousness and holiness, we show ourselves to be God's holy ones. We are what we do, and we do what we are. We reveal our identity by our behavior, and the living God is not mocked. So here's the warning. And we should all be warned by this. I am warned by this. Those who love and practice falsehood, those whose true identity is that of an evildoer, they will be outside the city. So let us keep the words of this book by avoiding moral compromise, by cleaning up our act, by living out our chosen identity as God's holy and righteous ones by living holy and righteous lives. You may think, hey, it's not that big a deal. 
I've got a way out of this thing. I can always repent. I, I can do what I want to do, and then I can repent, and Jesus will forgive me. You know that's true? So lavish is the grace of God that that is true. But how many people have we seen who have so seared their own consciences by moral compromise that when it's all said and done, they don't even want to come back and repent? And so they are unable to repent. It's not that they want to repent, but they are unable. The door of heaven gets slammed in their face. No, the door of heaven is open. They are unable to repent because they no longer want to. They have so seared their consciences by repeated rebellion that they are unable to return. How many of us, how many people who name the name of Jesus have not held to the testimony of Jesus and instead have traded the glorious reward of that day for a pot of stew in the here and now. They have traded in eternal life for a bit of sexual immorality. Now I have to say, sex is a good gift from God, but it is not a reason to live. It is not enough of a reason to live. How many have traded the Lord of glory for a bit of earthly comfort, a touch of worldly gain, a bit of societal prestige? But this book, this peek behind the curtain, this glimpse of ultimate reality warns us that moral compromise is a foolish trade. We need to hear that. We need to be awakened. Moral compromise is a fool's trade because the moral compromises, compromisers will be outside of the paradise that is to come. But lest we descend into the despair of salvation by works because we all have made foolish choices, we are all sinners Lest we descend into despair, we come to the second way that we keep this book. We keep this book by washing our robes. Verse 4 again. Blessed are those who wash their robes. See these two blessings. Blessed are those who keep this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to, uh, to the tree of life. So that they may enter the city by the gates. If we are honest with ourselves and about ourselves, the thought of Jesus the judge repaying everyone according to what they have done should not be a very comforting thought for any of us. If Jesus repaid us exactly for what we have done, none of us would fare too well. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need some other way to be counted righteous in God's sight. And as Eva read for us in chapter 20, at the great judgment, God's great books are opened. And they are the books of our deeds. God is much better at keeping track of everything we do in our lives than the federal government. 
God knows everything that we do online, offline. He knows all our metadata. He knows everything that we have done, all of our deeds. And on that day when our our books of deeds are opened, based on what we have done, we and the rest of mankind deserve nothing but the lake of fire. And if that's all we have is our deeds, we are headed for destruction. But you know there's another book? Over here, off to the side, there's another book. The book of life. The Lamb's book of life. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. And if our names are written in that book, in the Lamb's book of life, then it doesn't matter what's written in the other books. The book of the Lamb trumps the books of deeds. The book of the Lamb trumps our condemnation because of what we have done. We can wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. We can get clean. By believing in Jesus, by faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us, our filthy robes are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. If we want to enter that eternal city, the paradise of God, we must wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. So keeping the words of this book means trusting in the good news, repenting of our sin, and trusting in Jesus as our only claim to righteousness before God. The third way that we keep this book, maybe the most important way, is by keeping the real Jesus in view. If we have a diminished view of Jesus, if we have an inaccurate picture of who Jesus is, then we will not withstand the pressure against us. But this book gives us a peek behind the curtain into ultimate reality And the real Jesus is someone we would never abandon or turn our backs on. The real Jesus is the living God. Uh, Jesus reminds us who he is in verse 13. We don't have time to go back to all of the visions of Jesus in this book. I wish we did. But in in verse 13 of our passage, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, Alpha and Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But if you didn't know that, you just need to read the next two lines, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What does that mean? That Jesus is the beginning and the end. Well, it means that Jesus is not just some local Jewish guru. He's not just some messianic pretender. He's not just some historical has-been. Jesus is the eternal God, the Lord of all history. 
He wasn't just in the beginning. He is the beginning. And just as Jesus has no beginning, he also has no end. He is the end of all things. So Jesus is no mere man. He's not merely a sage or a wise teacher. The real Jesus is the eternal God. And that is not a Jesus that you can safely ignore. That is not a Jesus to turn away from. That is not a Jesus to abandon. That is a Jesus to trust in no matter what, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what else might be offered to us in exchange. We see another glimpse of the real Jesus in verse 16. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. What does that mean that Jesus is the root, the descendant of David? Well, if you know the Old Testament, you know that God promised a one day forever king the anointed one, the Messiah, as he, be, he, as he came to be called, the Christ, the, this one day forever king who would be a descendant of Israel's king David who would one day rule over everything, forever. Everything and everyone forever. This is God's promised one day forever king. And Jesus says that he is the root and the descendant of David. He is that forever king that God has promised. And his kingdom will never be overthrown. His kingdom will never be overturned because he rose again from the dead. Here's a pro tip for you. Not sure what that means, but we like to say that little phrase. Pro tip. You can never overthrow an unkillable king. And maybe you just want to wait him out, right? Maybe you can't overthrow him, but you'll just have your little little kingdom here, and you'll wait him out. You can't outlast an unkillable king. One day, all the kingdoms of the earth, even your tiny little empire, whatever you want to call it, Neilville or your equivalent, all the kings of, kingdoms of the earth, including your tiny little empire, will be subsumed by the kingship of Jesus Christ because God has ordained that he will rule over everyone and everything forever and he cannot be overthrown. He cannot be outlasted. So we only have two choices with an unkillable king. To gladly surrender or to be defeated. And that is who the real Jesus is. He is the root and the descendant of David. He is God's chosen king over everything forever. And that is strong encouragement for us to keep this book. To hold to the testimony of Jesus no matter what. Your eyes are glazing over like a donut. But there's a fourth way that we keep this book. We keep this book by our fidelity to Scripture. 
And this is the warning, the strong warning of, of, verses, warning of verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add. See the justice, the um, just recompense? If you're adding, God will add. And what will he add if you add to his book? The plagues described in this book. Well, what's wrong with adding to God's words, we might say? It might seem good at first to be even more strict than God. To have the appearance of super godliness. Well, no, God didn't say that, but we don't allow that. It has the appearance of godliness, but as Jesus warns us elsewhere, the inside gets hollowed out. And instead of following the commandments of the living God, we are following the traditions of men and our, our hearts grow cold on the inside. It might seem good to be more strict than God's word, but Jesus warns us that in the end, adding to God's word will incur God's judgment. We must not add things to faith in Jesus for salvation. We must not add things that God has not commanded us as necessary for holy living, for sanctification. If we add to God's words, we require more than God requires. And according to verse 18, we will reap the whirlwind of God's judgment. Equally dangerous is to take away. To say less than what God's word has said. And we're tempted to do this in so many ways. We're tempted to take away the parts that talk about God's wrath. Did you get a little uncomfortable when Eva was reading about the lake of fire? Eternal torment? We just skip that part. We could just avoid that. People would not be so psychologically damaged if we just skipped it. Or take away the parts that talk about the supernatural. Or take away the parts that talk about God's moral standards. These days, people want us to take, about, take out the parts about gender and sexuality. And that's just today's version. Or take out the parts that talk about necessity of faith in Christ for salvation. In the name of tolerance, we are tempted to be more tolerant than the living God. But listen to the warning of verse 19 again. If we take away, God will take away. If anyone takes away from the words of, the book of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. To take away from what God has said is deadly. We will forfeit our salvation, the warning says. 
So do you see what that means to keep this book? We need to be people of this book. Yes, the book of Revelation itself and the whole book that God has given us. We need to stick with what God has said. And in order to stick with what God has said and to not go above it or below it, to not say more than it says or less than it says, we have to know it. And to veer away from it is eternal peril. To say and to teach and to believe just what God has said and only what God has said is what we need to do to keep this book. And if we keep the words of this book, there will be suffering. There will be suffering within the church. There will be suffering from outside the church. There will be suffering in our own homes. But let us not fear the suffering that may come. Because the real suffering is for those who cower, for those who compromise, and for those who cash it in now. Jesus has told us Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps this book. Let me end with the reassurance of good news in verse 21 as the book itself ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.